electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza with Carl Quintanilla. John has the day off today. Tesla shares, they are rocketing higher, up double digits. The bold bear debate on that stock. And then speaking of Tesla, Elon Musk details the financing he has for a Twitter bid. Pressure on the board to respond now. More on that. Plus, the Netflix hangover. Ackman Fleas, should you? Carl. We're going to start the feed today with Tesla, up sharply, of course, beating on the top and the bottom line for Q1. Record revenue, deliveries, and margins. Elon Musk expressed high hopes for his Shanghai factory on the company's earnings call, despite this year's COVID shutdowns. Take a listen. Vehicle production in Q2 will be similar to Q1, maybe slightly lower. Um, but it's also possible we may pull a rabbit out of the hat and, and be slightly higher. But it's be call it roughly on par. Um, but uh, but then Q3 and Q4 will be substantially higher. Um, so, it, it, you know, it, it seems likely that we'll be able to produce uh, over one and a half million cars this year. Musk adding that he thinks Tesla has, quote, a reasonable shot at 60 percent growth in vehicle production year on year in 2022. And for more on Tesla this morning, let's bring in Bernstein senior research analyst Tony Saganaki. Talk about. The quarter, the metrics, the call, Tony, but I guess most importantly, the automotive margins, right? X credit. Yeah. Uh, good morning, Carl. It was a it was a terrific showing by Tesla. I think people were worried that ultimately margins would be pressured because of all the supply chain issues and inflation. And Tesla was able to increase margins uh, by about one percent or a hundred basis points on a sequential basis. So. That was very reassuring. You know, Tesla has been able to do it through several ways. Um, they've been effectively raising price. And because they don't have dealers, they're capturing those price increases, uh, not a distribution <laughs> partner. And, you know, they've done a very good job in terms of um, ramping capacity in their China facility where margins are higher. So most of the growth has been coming out of China. Margins there are, are, are better. Um, and so the combination of those things uh, led to very strong margin performance in the quarter. So I don't I don't I doubt that GM and Ford, for example, are, are in your coverage universe. But if they were, would you expect them to try to adopt some of these efficiencies that are almost unique to Tesla? Or do you think they can uh, they can try to close that gap uh, given their own legacy models? Well, I think, you know, that's really the challenge in any industry when you have a disruptive force everything is purpose-built and everything is new and there's no structural legacy disadvantage so you know in many ways the dealership uh for traditional automakers has been an advantage historically you know right now arguably it's a disadvantage because it creates inventory it allows for less pricing flexibility um and it's a you know it eats into profits there there is a cost of distribution um, and much like Dell did 20 years ago by selling PCs direct, 
Tesla and other new EV upstarts have started that. So that's the challenge. You know, Tesla has all new factories. Tesla doesn't have a legacy dealer network. And those are disadvantages for the large auto incumbents today. Now, their scale brings some advantages. Um, but, you know, that's the balancing act is to try and leverage scale and customer relationships while being over, being able to overcome the fact that their factories are not purpose built for EVs and they have a, a dealer network, which at times can be cost ineffective. Right. So, Tony, everything I'm hearing from you, you continue to be impressed with the company's performance, but it's valuation where you get stuck and why you have an underweight rating on the company. So I wonder what kind of forward P.E. multiple would be appropriate for a Tesla? The company just made three point three billion dollars on three hundred ten thousand units. What kind of growth are you factoring in over the next few years? Sure. So you're right. Tesla's executing very well and kudos to them uh, for their performance. We do struggle with valuation. Tesla produces about 2% of last year, produced 1% of the world's cars and had 50% of the total value of all all car companies. So all other legacy car companies make 98% of cars, and yet they have the same value of Tesla, who produces 1% of cars. And so our our concern really is about the the ability to sustain a 50% growth rate particularly since Tesla really only has two cars right now and doesn't have anything that's high volume that's planned. They have Cybertruck, but that will be expensive and lower volume. And they have, you know, what they talked about, a robo-taxi last night. But we're skeptical about Tesla's ability to deliver that by 2024, even 2025. What do you think the appropriate growth rate is then? Do you not think that, you know, a few years from now, Tesla can't double or even triple its market share? Um, well, I think Tesla's market share is likely to go down the, the, of, of the EV market. The, the fortunate news is the EV market's growing very quickly. So Tesla believes, and I think bullish shareholders believe, that Tesla can do you know, up to 20 million units going forward. We think that will be very difficult. We think you know, Tesla might be able to do you know, 7 to 12 million units over time. We think that even may be aggressive. And to do so, it'll have to enter lower price, lower margin segments. So the profit profile that we're seeing today, you know, may not be able to be sustained. Finally, Tony, when you when you think about uh, future sources of competition, we talked a bit about legacy OEMs and what they might put together. We haven't talked about whether or not Apple's going to do something or what power might be, on, be behind Amazon Rivian or, or Google Waymo. Are you surprised that we haven't heard more of an aggressive push, at least uh, uh, qualitatively from those players? And if and among them, who do you think is going to be the most vocal in the in the quarters to come? Yeah, you know, Apple has always been very guarded about talking about anything. And, and the time frame for their entry is probably several years from now. So we don't expect Apple to comment at all. Um, I, I think Amazon is ultimately, um, you know, thinking about um, and experimenting, you know, with electric vehicles as a transportation vehicle, it's unclear if they will ultimately participate uh, directly. But, you know, there are other technology companies uh, that have expressed uh, interest, obviously Google with Waymo, who I think will be, you know, much more vocal uh, over time and is starting to build partnerships with vendors. You have some of the Chinese vendors who are also uh, making investments in full self-driving. So we'll see more. But I, but I think your point, Carl, is 
this is be- the automotive market is becoming an increasingly competitive space. You have a bunch of new EV entrants. You have a lot of technology stalwarts who are showing interest in the space. That generally doesn't lend itself to margins going up. And, and that's implicit in, in Tesla's valuation going forward. <laughs> so many cross currents. It's fascinating to watch. Uh, really, good, uh, really good note and reaction to the earnings last night, Tony. Thanks. Good to see you. Tony Saganaki. Thank you. We're going to stick with the Musk uh, universe call it. Clarity on his bid for Twitter this morning. While the board has yet to respond to Musk's offer, a lot of outside commentary has been around how real this bid actually is. And Musk now trying to put that to bed this morning with a new filing saying that he has received commitment letters for $46.5 billion in funding to finance that takeover offer. So how do you get to 46 and a half? Well, Musk says that he has committed about $21 billion in funding through equity financing. So that's his cash, $13 billion in debt financing from banks, and then about 12 and a half bill on margin loans, which is basically using his own Tesla shares and his own enormous personal wealth to finance this purchase. So all those jokes about Musk paying for this with the spare change he finds in his couch cushions, it's not not accurate. Interestingly, the filing also says that given he has yet to hear back from the board, Musk is exploring a tender offer to acquire shares of Twitter directly from shareholders going around the board. But of course, that poison pill in place, it's basically impossible right now. Julia, it's great to have you on set, by the way, at it's One Market. It's so to be here. <laughs> it's been a few years. Yes. Um, okay, so we have not heard back from the board well, yet. Actually, just a couple of minutes ago, we did hear back from Twitter. Twitter was sending us a statement saying that we are in receipt the updated non-binding proposal from Elon Musk, which provides additional information regarding the original proposal and new information on potential financing. That's what you just laid out. And the board says here, or the, the company says here in this statement, as previously announced and communicated to Mr. Musk directly, the board is committed to conducting a careful, comprehensive, and deliberate review to determine the course of action that it believes is in the best interest of the company and all Twitter stockholders. So really interesting to see that they are not changing their stance here. They are continuing to move forward with this review. I want to point out that Twitter earnings are a week from today. They're next Thursday morning. And there is this question of whether we'll hear something more conclusive from Twitter before then. Right. It's a great point. Um, It's happening so quickly. You never know what's going to come out next. I also want to ask you about Netflix. I know that you were here covering that so closely yesterday. A new tidbit of news last night. Some people might have thought that Bill Ackman might see a little more value here given the sell-off. Not the case at all. He's like, I'm out. Bill Ackman is out. But now the question is, what are we going to hear from all of the other streamers? We heard that HBO and HBO Max, they added 3 million subscribers in the, this past quarter. So what that says is that maybe Netflix has its own issues. Maybe mm. Netflix has hit saturation. And there is p- hope now and, and some potential that we'll see these other streamers perform better than Netflix did. Instead of shrinking, they could continue to grow as HBO and HBO There has Max been did. this question of, like, is Netflix prestige TV or not? When's the last time that they had one of those prestige TV hits that, like, an HBO Max has? That'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. Um, lastly, though, I know you're going to be covering Snap tonight night and sort of a bellwether, right? Set the tone for Meta. Very closely watched. So remember last quarter, Facebook reported first. Facebook reported before Snap and they warned about all of these different negative impacts that they were having from the ad targeting headwinds from Apple changing its operating system. 
Facebook reported these negative numbers. Snap plummeted. But then Snap said, we're actually outperforming, and they beat on all of the different metrics. This quarter, Snap is expected to continue to grow revenue, continue to grow its user base, expected to add 11 million daily active users. It added 13 million last quarter. But if Snap outperforms, the question really is how, what kind of headwinds are they seeing broadly, because that could be applicable to these other platforms as well, whether it's the impact of the war on European ad spending or it's more ad targeting headwinds or even the impact of inflation and supply chain constraints on advertisers. So I think those broader questions are going to be incredibly valuable right. for the rest of this. And the certainly some stats. of them, all of them, very relevant to the other media companies, exactly. social media companies that are coming yeah. next. Okay, Julia, thanks for that. We're going to do more Netflix. That stock continues to fall. Our next guest notes that it's still trading a much higher multiple versus its pure play media peers. Joining us now, Satori Funds, Dan Niles. Uh, Dan, I know we were just saying Bill Ackman doesn't see value at these levels. Neither do you. How should Netflix be valued? Like one of those pure play media companies or like a technology company or a digital ad player? I think it should be valued like a pure play media company. I mean, all we've really done, if you think about it, Deirdre, is we've changed from a cable bundle to now a streaming bundle. So, mm -hmm. you know, I had... Uh, I was watching Netflix and Amazon before the pandemic. Now I've got HBO Max. I've got Peacock. Um, I've got some international ones because I like to watch some of those programs. Um, so I've got multiple different streaming stuff. And so that's all you've done. And if you remember, you've still got the same problems with streaming that you had with media, which is increasingly people are spending a lot more time on social media or playing online video games. You know, TikTok, the average user is spending about an hour and a half mm -hmm. on that platform. So these are all the same problems as before. You just changed it from cable to online streaming. And that's why Netflix, I think, should be valued like the pure play media companies. Yeah, Dan, like, like you, my family, too, has been adding on service after service. It is feeling just sort of like this separate, even more expensive kind of bundling. So when you look at Netflix versus some of the others, just spoke to Julia about HBO Max. Where is it positioned? I mean, there is chatter and that churn that we saw the past quarter. Is that reason for concern? Maybe tell you that if consumers are going to cut, it might be a Netflix? Well, here's the thing that people forget. Go back to the June quarter of 2019. They had negative subs in the U.S. back in 2019 in the June quarter for the first time since they split their um, you know, DVD mail-in business from their streaming business. They were already at saturation. Then the pandemic came along and everybody's stuck at home and all we can do is stream. So that bailed them out. And now we're right back to where we were before the pandemic. So this has been going on for a while. It's just the pandemic has thrown off a lot of trends. And now we're seeing some normalization in those trends. And, you know, on top of this, you've got Apple in this game. Mm -hmm. You've got Disney in it. You've got Comcast in it. These are massive companies. Obviously, Amazon's already been there. But you've got massive companies with huge cash flow streams from other businesses that they can mm -hmm. use to subsidize streaming. And Netflix has one thing, streaming. They don't, have, they don't have amusement parks. They don't have movies. They don't have merchandising. And they don't have an ad-supported an ad service. So they've got yeah. a problem relative to these other guys. They don't have those things yet, but especially on the app-supported model part, they laid out very clearly that that is their intention. So is that an exciting enough new revenue stream that you think um, could add a lot of value to the company? What did you make of the announcement as well and the idea that they would maybe outsource it? Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I mean, for us, I mean, we covered our short. I mean, it, 
the stock's down a lot. And so we are pretty disciplined when a stock is technically oversold, we get out of it. But as I responded on Twitter yesterday to a question, I said, look, if you look at Facebook, the stock got hit for 26% the day they reported. The stock has then gone down, I think, from like 150 or sorry, closed about 126, I think, or so afterwards. And it's continued to fall from there as the valuation is compressed to about 14, 15 times or so. And so I think with Netflix, you've got the same issue where I may not be short it, but I certainly don't want to be long it because you look at where the other pure play streamers are trading at 10 to 15 times. Netflix is still around 20 times earnings. So you could see a lot more room to go down before you say, well, maybe this is fairly valued. And the ad stuff will certainly help, but they're doing it from a position of weakness, not strength, if they had done this a year or two ago when they first had these problems with saturation. Dan, I, I want to get to Tesla, but really quick on sort of on this topic, I know you're a big believer in the wallet shift of the consumer to services. You're a big believer in, in travel. Uh, you, you think the airline rally makes sense. Uh, but there, there's been no worse Dow stock over the past year than Disney. Can that all be because of fears that the that North America is saturated when it comes to streaming? Well, you know, Disney's got a very high PE but it, it's a, that one's a tricky one because you've got streaming on the one hand, but don't forget, they had disappointing streaming numbers, um, but their content is a lot more narrow. They don't have, you know, uh, the breadth that some of the other ones do. And so, you know, that one's in a different bucket. I look at what United Airlines CEO said last night. He said, this is the best demand environment in 30 years. And then you look at what Netflix had to say, and they've lost C- total global streaming subs for the first time in over a decade. And that, that I think tells you what you need to know about the switch from spending on services like Netflix to travel and leisure like United. We own Southwest, we own Hyatt, we own uh, you know Uber, we own all the stuff that's sort of in that ecosystem, Penn for casinos. And so that's the space that we are looking to outperform. When you've got the best demand environment in 30 years, that's pretty good. Dan, while we have you, I want to get your thoughts on Tesla. We just had a conversation with Tony Sakanagi, who's underweight, about its valuation. Um, what do you think the right valuation is? And considering the company just made, what, $3.3 billion, you're seeing some compression here now, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm all about risk to reward. There's some fund managers that'll buy risk at any price. They don't care. That's not the way we function. And, you know, some strategies are right in some environments when you've got $10 trillion in stimulus. Go for as much risk as you can take. When you're in an environment where the Fed is going to have to be incredibly aggressive to deal with inflation, and you've got um, uh, you know multiple compression, and I think a very good chance, which is our base case for a recession in late 2023, you want to be careful about valuations. And don't forget, you know Tesla is trading at about 12 times EV to sales. Ford, GM, they traded about you know 0.3 to 0.5. <laughs> Even the EV manufacturers in China, which are growing at about 90% revenues year over year versus Tesla at about 60, those guys in China are trading about two and a half times EV to sales. And China is the biggest market in the world for EVs. So, you know, Tesla, I mean, Elon Musk is the Thomas Edison of our generation. He's going to go down as one of the greatest CEOs ever. And he's in multiple industries, right? SpaceX, you know, boring company for transportation, solar, EV. But the valuation, you're paying a lot for it. And Facebook and Netflix should be sort of warning signs of what can happen (laughs) if things turn. 
So I'm not going to unfortunately be there. We've owned it in the past when it yeah. seemed like it would trouble. We can't own it here with our strategy, at least. Well, we didn't even get to the idea that he may be soon in another industry, social media, uh, next time, I suppose, Dan. Thanks so much, Dan Niles. Thank you. Still to come this hour, the FANG names that Wall Street says you can still own, plus more on the battle for a union at Apple as we're getting some Powell headlines as well. Tech Chuck is just getting started. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Time for a gut check. Netflix in the red after its nosedive yesterday. But Wall Street still likes some other fang names. Cowan reiterates an outperform from Microsoft today. Credit Suisse says Meta and Alphabet are still a buy as well. And don't forget about Amazon. Bernstein still has them at outperform. Citi adds Amazon to their focus list, anticipating a continued growth for the tech giant. So Apple, Microsoft and Google all in the green today. Meta and Amazon are lower. And the durability of that big tech trade is where we begin things with Mike Santoli today as, I don't know, the, the acronym keeps getting truncated. Yeah, it's fracturing, uh, Carl. In fact, the names have changed. The stocks are the same. I would say, too, it's unclear to me if the persistent sell-side bullishness on names like Amazon and Alphabet are a net positive right here, because maybe they have to sort of catch down or at least have some reckoning in terms of sentiment and approach. What you see here over the last six months is uh, Amazon and Alphabet kind of sideways, almost exactly in tune with the NASDAQ 100. So they're not really distinguishing themselves. Although uh, the alphabet pattern, a lot of people are pointing out, looks a little bit toppy and maybe has to catch down. Anything related to or bumps up against media, streaming, uh, digital ads, obviously not working. Now, clearly, Facebook and, and Netflix, two quarters in a row, pretty disastrous. They're being punished for it. Big question is, can that gap persist? Obviously, over a multi-year time frame, massive money makers. Uh, but the average stock in the market is doing so much better than these. And the market prefers Apple right here. Apple's only, you know, 6% off its highs. It's hanging in there. Microsoft down 16% from a high, but had a much stronger 2021. So interestingly, the pre-fang leaders are the ones uh, that are, are holding things together here. I wonder what you make. You know, I mean, streaming, I'm not sure what we can do much about that. Right. But there, there was this underlying current that corporate IT, the reinvention of the enterprise, hybrid work would yeah. work for certain tech names and software. Does that not apply to FANG at all? It doesn't seem to be leverageable that directly in terms of FANG. And again, we're starting from a point here where these stocks were trading up toward 30 times earnings. So the things could be good. There could be demand right there. They could have persistent you know, advantages in this world, but the market kind of figured it out, and now we're just compressing valuations. Not to mention, we haven't really touched on the impact of even minor moves in yields, right? Hits these yes. guys directly. 
It, it does, although I would argue that with them down so much from their highs, we're not talking about little small moves in yields. In fact, you know, the NASDAQ was up 7% from mid-March when the 10-year was at 215, hits up at 285, and you're much higher on the index. So I think at this level, once you've already had this correction, it's less about the discounting effect of yields. Yeah, some might not mind if maybe the, the weighting shrinks a little bit, so we rely I think less. a lot of people prefer yeah. that at this point. And really, the, the, uh, the non-FANG valuation of the market is not nearly as extreme uh, to the upside as it was. Yeah. Great stuff, Mike. Uh, Mike Santoli. D. Coming up, why our next guest says Tesla will be up 10 times by 2030, plus Apple Store employees looking to unionize. That story's right after the break. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa. We continue to watch Tesla today. For those of you wondering, stock's best day ever. That was May 9th of 2013 when it rose 24%. We're going to get more on the quarter, of course, in just a moment. First, a news update, though, with Morgan Brennan. Hey, Morgan. Hey, Carl. So here's what's happening at this hour. American and Alaska are the latest airlines to post strong quarterly results. Watch their stock surge. American says it had record sales in March and surging demand will help it report a profit in the current quarter. Alaska Air says March was the first month when revenues topped pre-pandemic levels. Insurance broker Marsh McLennan jumping about 4%. The firm getting a boost from improving premium costs and higher organic growth across its business units. Freeport McMoran, meanwhile, sinking more than 7% despite Q1 results that topped estimates. The mining giant cut its copper production outlook for this year and next. And jobless claims are down slightly in the latest week to 184,000. They remain near five-decade lows. The total number of people getting employment benefits fell to just over 1.4 million, and that is the lowest level since February of 1970. Deirdre, back to you. Morgan, thank you. We're going to turn back to Tesla shares. They continue to climb. Our next guest thinks that this is actually just the beginning. He expects the stock to be up 10 times by 2030 in what he is calling the Tesla decade. Joining us now, Tesla Bull and Worm Capital Director of Research, Eric Markowitz. Eric, it's kind of funny to have this conversation. We spoke to a longtime bear at the beginning of the show who's underweight all about this idea of valuation. So I'm assuming that your projection takes into all the exciting things we heard on the call last night, like that annual growth of more than 50% robo-taxis, energy, et cetera. Yeah, first of all, thank you for having me on. And, you know, the more bears, the better. I think um, we like positions that are complex and tricky to figure out from a valuation perspective. So everything that we heard last night in the call really confirms a lot of the analysis that went into that 
91 page report, which obviously I, I can't get into all 91 pages today, um, but just the highlight reel, which is we expect 50% compounded growth over the next several years. Uh, we expect expanding margins. And we really think that this is very early on in the Tesla story, really only in the first or second inning. Yeah, so Eric, I'm curious, what do you think of this disconnect between sort of your traditional Wall Street analysts who have been behind this trade for many years and yourself and the arcs of the world that are, you know, looking to the future? Why do you think that Wall Street isn't, you know, counting the idea of robo-taxis, which Elon Musk said last night, uh, is going to be cheaper per mile than a subsidized bus ticket? Is there just a disbelief that he can actually do it? Yeah, so I think in general, what I would say is that we consider ourselves outsiders, which really, I think, gives us an advantage. Um, what we've seen historically is on Wall Street, a relatively superficial level of research. Um, I think Wall Street tends to go pretty wide, and our advantage comes on going deep. And so when we own a position, and we want to own positions really for the long term, um, we need to go super deep into the analysis to find a variant perspective that um, ultimately is differentiating from, from Wall Street's perspective. And we love to find these scenarios. I mean, we love to find scenarios where there is a really wide dispersion between our belief of the future and the growth and consensus expectations. And, and the wider that dispersion, the more arbitrage exists for us to exploit as long-term investors. Eric, I wonder if you're surprised at, I would argue, maybe the lack of Musk copycats, people who are stealing pages from his playbook, either from a production standpoint or a capital raise standpoint or a marketing, uh, a troll even, Twitter troll standpoint. Uh, and and, I, and if, if there are some, um, who would you look to first? Yeah, I, I think that um, what, what, what I found shocking, so a colleague and I went down a couple of weeks ago to Austin, Texas to take a look at the new factory which is a pretty incredible facility. And one of the more shocking elements to me was not just the scale and some of the core engineering and innovation that's, that's happening there, is that they simply opened it up for everyone to see. And I thought that was such a move of confidence to show some of the most profound, groundbreaking, cutting edge uh, manufacturing techniques. And, and Tesla just invited the public in to see it. And I think that speaks to the confidence and the maturity of this business and ultimately, you know, that factory combined with Giga Berlin, Giga Shanghai and the expansion of Fremont, um, we're very early in this in this growth curve from our perspective. Right. I also think it's interesting, you know, he gets knocked around a bit for past projections or forecasts that maybe uh, were late. Right. Obviously, his robo taxi uh, prediction is still late. But I wonder if you think at least the street is coming around to the idea that, all right, maybe the date that he gives on a certain target uh, is questionable, but he's going to get it done eventually. Yeah, to be clear, from our research, we do believe that Tesla will achieve a, an autonomous robo-taxi network. Um, I think one of the, the core mistakes that many investors seem to make, from my perspective, is, is they, they disbelieve Elon. And I think that um, you know this is, this is an individual who has really cultivated an, a culture of, of innovation that exists in all of his firms, not just Tesla, but we see it at SpaceX as well. Um, and so, you know, frankly, when we just go back to our valuation, um, again, this is all our analysis, our opinion, not financial advice. Um, our 10x by 2030 valuation assumptions do not include RoboTaxi, and they also do not include mm. other real-world AI products. Wow. Well, Eric, even, even some of the Tesla bears will admit that he's one of the greatest CEOs in a generation, the Thomas Edison of our times. I wonder what you think about this bid, though, 
at Twitter, this run at Twitter. And there wasn't a single question on the call last night. But don't you think that's relevant, especially if he's going to be selling some of his Tesla shares or he's going to be the CEO? Is it possible that this could be a bridge too far, even for Elon Musk, and amount to a distraction? <laughs> you know, there's never a dull day. Um, we've we've owned the position for for more than four years. It's been our largest position by far for those four years uh, and, and and longer. And, and and what I would say is, um, don't get in the way of Elon if you want something. <laughs> and uh, and and when I hear this this idea that it's a distraction, I just have to laugh. I mean, this is a guy who is literally running some of the most groundbreaking yeah. across multiple verticals. And this is, you know, maybe a big deal for you or I, but I think in our world, this would be akin to maybe us buying a new car or a house. Um, you know, this is like or a, a yacht. footnote. Yeah. <laughs> he wants uh, to compete or, with Bezos's yacht. Right. This is really just, in my opinion, like a, a footnote on his uh, on his CV. That's fair. And he certainly has a large pool of talent to pull from if he wants to find some people to run that company. Eric, it's great to have you on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. As we go to break, a programming note here. Don't miss Sarah Eisen down in D.C. this afternoon. Have a slate of big interviews, including a conversation uh, with Fed Chair Jerome Powell. Begins at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern time. Tech Check, in meantime, is back in a moment. Apple Store employees in Atlanta, the first to file for a union election. Steve Kovac with us here in San Francisco. Yes. And we were talking about this earlier because we can, because right. we're in person. <laughs> we're IRL now. Exactly. Yeah. And I was kind of making the analogy to Amazon, asking you how this was different in a way. I know it's factory workers versus retail yeah. workers, but similar themes here. These are well-paid workers relatively, but the pandemic changed Everything. Yeah, that, that's exactly right, Dee. So I was talking to a CWA rep. This is a union who's backing these employees. And I was like, why is this happening? Apple, first of all, it's a small number of Apple employees relative to the tens of thousands in the entire country. They're well above pay for most retail, 20 bucks an hour starting. They get stock grants. They get parental leave, all this kind of stuff that you typically don't think of retail. Right. So why? They tell me it's really the pandemic kind of resetting expectations of what people expect to get from work. And it's not just retail. It's not just frontline work. We're seeing it as people are returning to the office. Everyone has a new idea of what their job should look like. And in the retail space, not just Apple, but Starbucks and Amazon, right. they're fighting back and saying, hey, we kind of learned a lot about what we can get out of our labor and what it's worth and what we think we're worth. And in Apple's case, they're saying, look, richest company in the world, yeah. most valuable company in the world, they can afford to do it. So let's see what happens. And especially amid a labor shortage, right? There's more options. Right. And what looked really good over the last few years, these benefits and the pay that Apple's offering, other companies are offering this because they have to, exactly. right? Verizon so just this week upped their pay to 20 bucks an hour minimum as well. And But what we're seeing from the Apple side is at least there's the Grand Central store in New York. They're asking for 30 bucks an hour. And there's talk at this Atlanta right. store. They, they haven't have any specific demands yet. I've been asking. They still don't know yet. But what uh, they are pointing to is if they want a good cost of living experience in Atlanta, it needs to be 27, 28 an hour. Right. So with all of these unionization efforts at the big tech companies, at Starbucks, the key question is always the domino effect, right? Exactly. And we saw a second one come really quickly. Are right. you hearing anything about other employees at other stores? Yeah, I've been asking this? that. So here's the thing. It's so weird with these. It's so disparate and disorganized, to be honest, about how this is happening. At first they are. At first they are. And, you know, it's very each store kind of chooses which union they want to work with. 
with the two that we heard about this year are working with two different unions. So, it, mm. and they like to keep it quiet until they're ready to go public, until they have those cards right. signed, until they're ready to file with the NLRB. They don't want to show their cards mm. too soon to Apple because, or whatever employer anyone's organizing against, because that's when the activities from the employer come in and say, here's why you shouldn't unionize. And quick one, quick last one for yeah. you. What's Apple saying? You know, Amazon fought right. this really hard. Starbucks, I assume Apple is going to, and we've heard some commentary from yeah. them. Yeah, Apple's official statement to us right now, and it's the same one they gave us Monday, is look, they point to all the benefits they give. Yeah. Again, paid parental leave, stock grants, Apple stock is pretty nice benefit to get. They point to all this and say, look, we have a great benefits and compensation program for our retail employees above average. Uh, so, you bottom know, line bottom is, line. None yeah. of the tech companies want this exactly. to gain momentum. 100%. Uh, Steve, so we'll see what happens. Thank you so much for being with Thanks, us. Thanks, Steve. Yeah. Carl. Uh, D, we're keeping our eye on Bitcoin today, trading at about a two-week high. Tech Check is back in just a moment. Got some breaking news out of Warner Brothers Discovery and CNN Plus. Julia Borston has that for us. Hi, Julia. Hi, Carl. That's right. CNBC has confirmed with the source close to the situation that Warner Brothers Discovery is planning to shut down CNN Plus. It has not been in operation for very long. But of course, this comes um, after CNN Plus launched just before the closure of that merger. And now that the merger has gone through, um, it, it appears as if the David Zaslav run company, this combined company, wants to really focus on building HBO Max as a unified service and to bundle together all of their different streaming operations. So this really uh, indicates that they're not happy with the direction that CNN Plus was going in. There were a number of reports that it was not drawing a lot of subscribers, but we did not have any official subscriber numbers. And now when we get that company's earnings, we expect to hear more from Zaslav about how he plans to handle all of those streaming services together. No official comment from the company yet, but we do expect to hear an official announcement on the shuttering of CNN Plus uh, in the next uh, hour or so. Guys, back over to you. Uh, Julia, uh, stunning reversal, obviously, with the, with the big management change. I guess it's going to be already some comments on Twitter today comparing the, uh, the, the shelf life of CNN Plus to what was Quibi. I guess the question will be, is this a, a one-off because of the change in management, or is it going to feed the argument that there's true saturation in streaming overall, in North America at least? Well, look, I think the CNN Plus and the Netflix audience are very different. One thing that was interesting about CNN Plus, it was very much a subscription service. We've seen other players, such as NBC's News Now at our sister company, focus on being ad-supported and free, CNN Plus going in a very different direction. And I think there is this question of how many services are consumers willing to pay for? And I also think that Zaslav probably sees CNN Plus and all of these different assets as an opportunity to build up the bundle and make sure that what he's selling, the streaming service he's selling, can compete at the level of a Netflix and a Disney Plus because there aren't going to be that many players that, that end up surviving here. So the question is, what are the three streamers that people are going to want to subscribe to? And can CNN Plus help bolster that? Now, when you say that it wasn't an operation for very long, what was it, like two or three weeks? Just just a, about, I think it was about three weeks now. I'll have to go back. Quibi and was around for at least a few months. Quibi was around longer. Again, I, I would say a different situation. Quibi, yeah. um, Quibi would say its failure was because it was all about this quick bite content that was designed to be consumed on the go but, and then it did not adapt at all to the pandemic and being available on TV. What's interesting with CNN Plus, though, is that there is crossover from their linear talent and producers to the CNN Plus. Yes. So what's that going to do to morale?
sell inside the company. They make this big gamble to continue to stay relevant, and it gets shut down well, after a few weeks. Well, I think one of the issues was is that they already were pulling back. They already, with this merger looming, were not getting the financial resources they expected. So they had this big plan. They had this expectation they were going to get a billion dollars to launch this, but they never actually got all of those resources. So people were really being stretched thin. According to people I've talked to at the company, people were being asked to do multiple jobs. They weren't able to hire all the additional people they needed to to really manage two different shows for two different platforms. And with the recent news that they had stopped all marketing for CNN Plus, I think the writing right. was sort of on the wall. Makes sense. Uh, WBD down 6%. Um, the news, it was Axios yesterday, Julia, that said CNN Plus was doomed, uh, but I'm not sure we expected the news like this quite so soon. Appreciate that, Julia Borston. Uh, turning now to software, it is no secret the sector's taken a hit this year. Where might you find some opportunity? Our next guest likes names like Zscaler and MongoDB because they passed the rule of 40 test, meaning they have a growth rate and profit margin above 40%. Joining us to talk about the sector, Bessemer Venture Partners' Elliot Robinson. Pretty fascinating framework, Elliot, but I, I know you think... Uh, valuation is still part of that equation, right? That's right. I mean, if we take a step back and we look at the Bessemer Emerging Cloud Index, this represents the 78 best cloud software companies in the public market. Those are down about 28% year to date, but the top quartile performers are garnering about 11x forward revenue multiple. That's down from 23 times in Q4 of last year. So as you guys have been talking about all day, as interest rates go up, cost of capital goes up, Companies that have a widening bridge towards that pathway to profitability and free cash flow generation, they're going to be penalized even more harshly by the street. So as we enter the summer months and we're looking at software, we're really analyzing companies to that rule of 40 to make sure that top line growth rate and their profit margin are healthy as they think about the quarters ahead. Elliot, it's great to have you. It's Deirdre. What about um, the IPO market? I know that you think that that could reopen in the third quarter. What leads to that, especially as we start to see valuations in private markets follow their public counterparts? Um, do you think that some of your portfolio companies and some of the bigger unicorns are going to have to readjust, re-rate themselves, and that's how the IPO market opens? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, what we're going to see is a stabilization of, of valuations as we go into the second half of the year in Q3 and Q4. But there's a couple of companies that follow kind of their predecessors from 2020 and 2021. Two companies that come top to mind. One is Service Titan. This is a vertical SaaS company going after field service workers. So, you know, plumbers, electricians, people that do gardening and landscaping. It's the predominant player in the space. Uh, they have a great software solution, and at massive scale, they're able to um, add new attach rates and new revenue SKUs, so they can compound growth regardless of whether valuations are up, down in the, in the quarter. They have a long uh, kind of bridge ahead of them. In terms of another company I really like in the data infrastructure space, Databricks. This is a company that's achieved, at least mm -hmm. in January, the CEO said they'd surpassed $800 million of ARR, compounding growth. Uh, great net uh, net dollar retention above 40%. These are two companies that I think, despite kind of interest rates changing, some global macro uncertainty that we're still going to face in the second half of the year, these are great stable companies that follow kind of their predecessors from the 2020-21 cohort. We've spent the last couple of days talking about uh, average valuation multiples in cybersecurity. Do you think at this point those are overextended? No, you know what's funny, um, a Citibank report came out recently that said 78% of CTOs and IT security specialists are finding it harder and harder to secure their networks as their employees are working from home or remote locations. So what you're seeing is efficiency scores well north of 40%. 
Actually, the, the cybersecurity average in the M cloud right now is about 63%. So again, that's really strong um, top line growth because the problem is unfortunately only getting bigger for enterprises, but also these companies are able to generate free cash flows. So, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the, the general uh, artificial intelligence or RPA space, the cybersecurity category is outperforming and all, all indications in the macro economy show that they've got a long runway ahead of them. Some good actionable ideas, Elliot. We appreciate that very much. Look forward to next time. All right, Elliot thank Robinson you guys. joining us from Bessemer. Still to come, Lam Research falling after reporting results. Plus, we are watching shares of Warner Brothers Discovery on the news that it will be shutting down CNN Plus just weeks after launching the service. Those shares down nearly 7%. The streaming fallout post-Netflix. Also an interesting merger story as David Zaslav marks his mark, makes his mark on the company. Stay with us. We're back in just two. Quick gut check on Lamb Research. Shares are in the red after the company reported a miss on the top and bottom lines. The CEO attributing those results to, quote, an extraordinarily difficult supply chain environment, adding that they are focused on resolving those issues quickly to support strong demand. Lamb Research is down more than 20 percent over the past year, 30 percent year to date, underperforming the broader semi-index. We are back right after this. Take a look at some of the streaming names uh, this morning. The conversation around at least subscription-based streaming is going to continue on multiple multiple reports now uh, that Warner Brothers Discovery will, in fact, shutter CNN Plus in the days to come, just 30-some-odd days after launching. Uh, D Variety uh, broke the story this morning a few mm -hmm. moments ago, uh, said uh, some additional reporting suggests that it was the decision to go forward with the launch just weeks before Discovery took over that rankled uh, David Zasloff. Right, and somehow they made it to launch, but what did it last less than three weeks? The stock action is interesting, Carl. Shares of um, Warner Brothers Discovery down nearly 8% now, but you would think that some cost savings come in here and maybe they have plans for some of the content, some of the programming in a broader HBO Max app or whatever they're going to call it. Yeah. Meantime, uh, Powell, of course, 1 o'clock, will watch as he uh, invoked Volcker in his initial speech today and snap tonight. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.